0: What is up movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 38. We're going to be doing Jurassic Park and my man, they do not make movies like this anymore. Certainly not. We've been waiting to do a Spielberg episode. People keep asking for Spielberg movies, so here you go. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't touched on them really at all. Yeah. I don't think I can think of one time we talked about one of his movies, and Jurassic Park is a once-in-a-generation film, captured the imagination of just not kids, but basically every every person that went to see it um no one had ever seen anything like this realistic looking dinosaurs moving around flying eating killing people it was insane to see yeah this movie made 900 million dollars um which is crazy back then and it was also just a groundbreaking achievement of filmmaking in terms of the special effects and cgi cgi had been used uh sporadically before this uh ilm did the special effects in this film and they previously did cgi effects in terminator 2 they did the uh the Terminator, who can morph into different shapes with the metal. Mm-hmm. And they did The Abyss, James Cameron's other film. And so those were two films that used CGI as live-action characters, but they were still like not quite perfect. And in this film, they really showed the true capability and potential of CGI. And Spielberg, he originally just wanted to do animatronics as well as stop-motion, right? Yeah, he wanted to do a combination of uh, animatronics and stop-motion for the dinosaurs. But ILM um, sent him a test of the T-Rex uh, in a shot. In complete daylight and he was sold on it and decided to use about 50% of the shots of dinosaurs as CGI shots. And I think it was the success of Jurassic Park with ILM which led to the founding of Pixar Studios, right? In those first sto- short stories in Toy Story 1. Yeah, those special effects artists and visual effects artists um, became the small company of Pixar. And the, the visual effects in Jurassic Park were so groundbreaking that it inspired several major directors to take on projects that they that became famous for them so for example after they saw this movie george lucas was inspired to start working on the star wars prequels again stanley kubrick was inspired to start ai artificial intelligence and peter jackson was inspired to start working on the lord of the rings trilogy because they saw the potential that cgi gave them as filmmakers Absolutely incredible and Jurassic Park came out on June 11th in 1993 again directed by the legendary Steven Spielberg based on the novel Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton a fantastic author he's got a bunch of great books check him out if you haven't screenplay by David Kep, and also Malia Scotch Marmo this film stars Sam Neill Laura Dern Jeff Goldblum and Richard Attenborough this film had a worldwide box office of 1.03 billion dollars absolutely absurd incredibly successful film, and it follows billionaire John Hammond who creates an island theme park that has one thing that no other theme park has, real-life dinosaurs. Despite the staff's guarantee that the park is safe, visiting paleontologists and experts find themselves in the middle of the park's worst nightmare. This film won three Oscars, including Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects, and Best Sound. I think that was back when sound and sound effects were, were a separate, separate category, yeah. so now it's one. And Jurassic Park and the Jurassic World franchises have combined for over $8 billion at the box office in revenue. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get twenty percent off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. If you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do to support us is subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us. Share us with your movie friends. We're mostly growing word of mouth, so tell them all. Tell your family, your friends who love movies that there's a great new show at them for, the check, for them to check out. Leaving a five-star review is incredibly helpful, especially those written reviews. Helps us get seen by new people on the podcast apps. And we also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly. And members get special perks like sneak previews at episodes, personalized videos, and our top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast to be immortalized forever. Do it, guys. Jurassic Park came out in 1993, so if you haven't seen it, I don't know what you've been doing your whole life. So uh, just a warning, spoilers are abound. And so Steven Spielberg already changed the way that films were released and uh, marketed First with Jaws. Yeah, so, Jaws was the first summer blockbuster so, ever. Now, Jaws was originally supposed to come out in, in the winter, but they changed it to the summer, cause, and they did not think that it was going to make as much money in the summertime. That's why movies rarely came out in the summertime. Um, it was and, mostly like those B-monster movies. Yeah, exactly. But they realized the potential with Jaws showed that there a lot, all the kids are, are, are out of school um, on summer vacation and provides it with more opportunities to get ticket sales, as long as the movie is enticing. And so after that... Spielberg literally changed the face of releasing films and the the business side of of uh, of movies, and then Jurassic Park I think is the ultimate example because Indiana Jones movies did they did make a lot of money, but Jurassic Park shattered every record before it. It became the most successful movie. Up to that point of all time. And one of the most successful franchises too. And Jurassic Park is what made Steven Spielberg a billionaire. Like we talked about George Lucas. How he became a billionaire from owning the merchandise rights from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Which is how he negotiated his contract for a smaller salary when he made those. Steven Spielberg amassed his fortune... Of billions by writing the success of Jurassic Park, the film series, which saved Universal Pictures from bankruptcy and allowed Spielberg to negotiate being paid 2% of all park tickets sold at Universal theme parks, as well as portions of gross revenue from concession sales, which is absolutely absurd. So every time you've been to Universal Studios and been on a ride, Spielberg has gotten a cut of your ticket. That's insane. And after renewing the contract, this he's been still getting paid like this mm-hmm. every year. They reviewed the contract in two thousand seventeen because obviously Universal wants to buy him out of it. Spielberg elected to stay in the deal instead of being offered a payout of I think they offered like five hundred and fifty million dollars. But he's gonna wait until they offer a payout of a billion. What a for, boss. for him to get out of that clause because it's insane how much money he's making just from sitting on his ass from that from what he created with Jurassic Park. That's crazy. And for just the film alone, he earned two hundred and fifty million dollars because he also got A sizable chunk of the back end of the profits of the film itself. And so just for the first Jurassic Park film, he made $250 million. Which at that moment was the most a director had ever made for a film. But guess who beat him? James Cameron with Avatar. He ended up earning three hundred and fifty million dollars because of Avatar's success. Holy crap! What percent did he have of that movie? He must have had like uh, maybe thirty um, percent, twenty to twenty-five percent, maybe. Cause oh yeah, because like, it made two billion. Yeah, it made two billion. He might have had like twenty percent of Avatar. That's insane. So three hundred fifty million dollars just for one movie. Crazy. And then this movie, it was it it changed the idea of of what you could do in a movie because, like we said earlier, the the advancement and the groundbreaking special effects they used. had never been done before never been seen before and the most the most successful filmmaker at the time didn't even think cgi would work that's how unawares people were of the profound power of cgi and then spielberg implementing cgi in this most of the time it holds up the cgi sometimes it's a little iffy but i think for the most part it still looks great and the reason why the cgi looks so good is because the way spielberg filmed it was very smart Uh, You you won't see any close-ups of dinosaurs when they're CGI. You'll see close-ups of of the dinosaurs when they're animatronic, but not CGI. Every CGI shot is very wide. Um, Also, it's very dim lighting. For example, the T-Rex attacking the cars. It's it's raining. It's nighttime. There's a lot of fog. There's very very minimal lighting. And so I think if that was obviously shot in daylight, you would have seen the imperfections and kind of the unrealistic qualities of the CGI. But I think the way Spielberg filmed the movie... He wisely shot the dinosaurs in a way to make the CGI work better than I think most other filmmakers would have. For example, like the Brachiosaurus um, scene, he's got a huge wide shot of the Brachiosaurus as it's eating from the trees, and it looks great. Even though if he did a close up, you would have been like, that skin texture does not look real at all. It looks more like Nat Geo quality on a TV show. But because he shot it from far away, it makes it seem more realistic for us. Yeah, it's like kinda like Star Wars. And even before that, we talked about on that episode, we talked about Metropolis in the nineteen twenties, which actually blew people's minds away with what they were seeing. And again, Star Wars blew our minds. They no one's seen anything like that before, and Jurassic Park was the same thing. Practical effects it's combined with CGI and The dinosaurs, there are only 15 minutes of dinosaur footage in this movie, and nine minutes are actually Stan Winston's animatronics, and six minutes are industrial light and magic CGI. And the process of what they did to make these practical effects is they actually, for the raptors, built these suits that were operated by human beings, and it's absolutely incredible. You can find a bunch of cool behind-the-scenes footage of Stan Winston animatronics making these suits, and the stages they went from just these foam designs to actually real raptors and real textures and real movable mouths that they control while they're inside operating. So the person would be inside the raptor suit. They can control the arms. They can tr- they can walk. They can run. They, they can even hang- you- turn the neck really yeah, accurately. Th- yeah. And they could even uh, control the-, the jaw and biting. And it honestly makes me mad that we're still stuck right now with still, this isn't really done anymore. And like the practical effects are gone away, except for like Chris Nolan films, he's still obsessed with practical effects. And I wish that if they could do this in 1993, imagine what they could do today. Yeah, I think especially, for example, with the, the more recent Jurassic Park films, the Jurassic World films, they use some practical animatronics, but mostly they're very... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. <coughs> Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling minimally used. For example, I think the the biggest scene they used them in is when uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are, are stuck in that shipping crate with the T-Rex and that they built that T-Rex, but I mean, it's just sleeping the whole time. And to be honest, the uh, most of the Velociraptor shots, the animatronic and in, in the bodysuit ones in this film, they are much better than the modern CGI ones and I think that they still hold up. Obviously, I think the movement is not perfect. That's why I think they go CGI but I think that especially that kitchen scene that famous kitchen scene the velociraptors the shots of them in that film you know they're there you know they're in the frame you know they're they're in the scene with the kids and that makes it more terrifying because the the human eye and the human brain we can tell when it's not real i mean we subconsciously we can see a cgi image and we're not totally sold on it we'll be like oh that was great cgi but we know it's not real but the difference is with this film with the animatronics and with the body suits we're like That's real. That's in the camera. That's with the actors. And I think that makes a whole world of difference. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below the waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. They sent us their performance packages. They sent us shirts, underwear, deodorant, everything you can think of. They've sent it to us. We have their luxury lawnmower groomers, which are insane. They have a light on it. They're waterproof. You can use in the shower. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. It's almost the holiday season. It's time to get some gifts. I recommend hopping on manscaped.com for the men in your life. You got brother, boyfriend. Um, siblings, whatever, your uncle, your 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 grandfather, <laughs> the whole family tree. The whole family tree. It, grooming's a part of life. This shouldn't just be for men or women. It's, it should be for everybody. We got to groom, especially lockdown, COVID. We don't want to get things to get a little out of control. So manscaped.com, the best place to get this kind of gear. Any guy would love this as a gift. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping today at manscaped.com. And I think my favorite animatronics practical shot in the film with dinosaurs is when the T-Rex is attacking the kids in the Jeep and he's got his eye on the windshield or on the window and the the girl shines the flashlight in his eyes and you can see his eyes, the pupils dilate and undilate with Mm -hmm. with the light. So it's like amazing practical effects for 1993 and they really thought it out and they really covered, covered every avenue of what could happen to these creatures in real life. Yeah, and when you combine the great... Uh, the the animatronics with uh, fantastic cinematography and then amazing sound design like you when these an, when these dinosaurs roar and groan and and scream it feels so realistic and you feel like they're real this movie is loud and like if you have a home theater system that's like the best way to watch this but if you have a crappy Roku TV like we do we gotta upgrade our shit because this was loud as hell when we watched it recently but again the sound in this movie is incredible and The Tyrannosaurus Rex's roars were made with a combination of dog, penguin, tiger, alligator, and elephant sounds together. It's a lot of animals. And then we said previously the Velociraptor sounds were made from uh, tortoises having sex. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And a really interesting thing about this film is that Spielberg uh, finished production on this and he was in the post-production phase of Jurassic Park while he began production on Schindler's List. Both these films actually came out in 1993 in the same year. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And so he actually took no days off. He just went from Jurassic Park to Schindler's List. And while he was shooting Schindler's List, he was uh, going through the edits of, of Jurassic Park and going through the pro- post-production and visual effects. So he would do conference calls and video conference calls with the Jurassic Park crew to tell the CGI and visual effects crew like what he wanted from shots. And then he would go through the scenes with the editor um, each almost every day while he was shooting Schindler's List. And I can't think of a more impressive one-two punch of two films for a filmmaker to make Jurassic Park and then Schindler's List come back up back back to back from each other because they're both um, masterpieces in their own right. They're both important films in cinema, and they couldn't be more different from each other. Yeah, that just shows the skill of Spielberg as a director, and he's he's one of the most successful, obviously, but also one of the most important directors we've ever had because. He again, he created the summer blockbuster, and uh, obviously he's been entertaining us for so many decades. But his his skill as a director, like we just we just mentioned with Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, it, it transcends so many genres. I mean, Jaws, E. T., Jurassic Park, Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report. He's such a legendary director. Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. I mean, it's insane the movies that this guy has made, and people. I think a lot of people think, like, oh, it's just. Uh, Indiana Jones, or he just makes these blockbusters, but he makes a lot of smaller films, too, as well. I mean, Catch Me If You Can, that's not really a small, that's not a huge, huge film like Jurassic Park, but that's one of my favorite Spielberg movies. It's one of his best, for sure. And the great thing about Jurassic Park is, it's a monster movie, and with dinosaurs, and, like, you would think, like, oh, it's kind of, like, not that crazy or far-fetched of of an interesting or unique idea, but... It's because of Spielberg's skill as a director, it's so much more than that. We actually have real legit underlying themes with this film, most specifically like humans versus nature, or humans versus God, God versus nature. So there's a lot of great interesting themes going on. Yeah, so there are a lot of very deep themes that we're gonna get into. And also the the film is centered upon human characters and human dilemmas and, and problems and themes. And I think with every Spielberg film, no matter how uh, how many special effects or unbelievable it is, he always centers his stories on people. And I think that's why, why it really sets it apart from other films because if you look at like the new Jurassic Park movies and any other kind of big-budget science fiction film, um, it's usually spectacle over, um, over substance. And like you said, the themes in this film are very heavy, especially for uh, a, a movie centered on every kind of age of person, from kids to uh, adults. And yet, the themes are so heavy. You don't really see that in other films like the new Jurassic Parks. They don't really have deep themes. It's just like dinosaurs take over and everyone has to run away. Whereas this film explores the ideas of technology versus nature, uh, progress uh, in the in discovery versus versus history and. And the idea of, of power and being able to control power. And even humans destroying the earth is a yeah. major theme. Yeah, and so there's there are a lot of heavy themes and ideas that uh, Spielberg explores through the characters in this film. I think that's why this film is so timeless, because it's not just a monster movie. It's a lot more than that. Yeah, and just to stay on the spectacle that you just mentioned. And Jaws, one of the most effective things that... Spielberg did was he didn't show the shark for the first I think entire hour of the film that was one of his stipulations to make the film and direct is he didn't want to show the shark at all for an hour because he built that tension he built that suspense and he wanted to when you finally see the shark it really paid off and with Jurassic Park he, he shows the monster he shows the, the wonder early and I I don't hate it. I, I think We're it's like actually, twenty minutes in. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a good call rather than waiting and saving it for longer. I think that's a critique of some people is that he didn't save onto the 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 reveal of the dinosaurs because the opening scene is the Velociraptor in the cage. We don't get to look at it. We just hear it. We just see what it does to people and the noises that it makes. And then we we um don't see a dinosaur until the Brachiosaurus scene, mm-hmm. which is an amazing reveal. And the thing with Jurassic Park is I think that Spielberg understood that at the time. The wonder of these creatures is really what was the most important part of the film. Because we've seen sharks. We know what they look like. We've seen, obviously, in the 1970s, they'd seen TV shows about sharks or documentaries about sharks, textbooks or whatever. We, we, we've seen them. We know what they look like in real life. But dinosaurs, actual real ancient dinosaurs that were extinct 65, that were here 65 million years ago, have been extinct for that long. We, we've we always just thought we know what they look like. We've seen photos of them in textbooks. We've seen um, you know frozen versions of them in museums and in prototypes and skeletons and cartoons but we've never actually seen like a major film production depict them in an accurate way on a big screen to actually feel their roar and hear what they sound like and, and actually try to imagine what they were really like and to have that put up on the screen in front of us we never really had that before so I think that instead of saving it it was really effective to use it pretty early on yeah, exactly. It's not a horror movie. You're not. You're not making Jaws, or you're not showing it. It, it. This is more about the the magic of filmmaking and what it can do. And just the the this film. This shows the the power of film where you can bring back an extinct species and show it to audiences. And you can see, and we can see what it was like to what it, these animals were like and what it's like to see a human and a dinosaur in frame at the same time. So I think he understood that. The the spectacle needed to be shown uh, as soon as possible in this film. And John Williams, I mean, this guy is a genius with a capital G because every time we talk about John Williams, we say that the movie we're talking about is like his best score. But I mean, it's hard to pick which is his best theme, which is his best score. And he's Mm -hmm. the master of themes and emotion. And the theme to Jurassic Park, it fills you with so many emotions. It fills you with wonder. It fills you with hope. Uh, magic, even and ov- obviously horror and dread, because there's some really intense scenes and terrifying scenes in this movie, and it also somehow makes you feel connected to the earth, like we're connected to these dinosaurs somehow, because we really are, because we shared the same home. Yeah, he manages every every film of his to create iconic themes, and uh, th- this is another iconic one where everyone can hum the tune to Jurassic Park and there's so many films of his where you can hum the tune to them and not many composers have that and so he has this innate ability to just capture the, the ideas and emotions of a film and create sounds with them and No one else has or ever probably will do it the same way again. This film is also, it's pretty terrifying, especially for kids, even for adults, like the first few times you've ever seen. If you've never seen Jurassic Park, it's scary as fuck the first time you watch it. Mm -hmm. And I know this came out in 93. We were just little, 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 little guys. And uh, mom always tells us the story whenever we talk about Jurassic Park that we, it was our favorite movie when we were little kids because obviously we got on VHS as soon as we could, Mm -hmm. our family. And we would, whenever we would watch it. Uh, we would be so scared of the T-Rex that we would have to run behind the couch and we'd like peek up over the cushions to like watch the T-Rex tear everybody <laughs> apart because that was the only part we were we were mostly afraid of. But, but it made us run behind the couch and hide. Yeah, and I think it's okay for for kids to watch movies that can be a little scary sometimes because that's part of, I, I mean, um, being frightened in, in fear is a part of life. And so I think it's it's not like you shouldn't shelter kids from seeing this film because it, it, it's, it is just a movie and you learn when you grow up. You, you, you learn that movies aren't real life. I turned out all right. Yeah, you turned out fine. Oh, so far. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. This movie has some really horrific elements. And Spielberg pretty much pulls no punches. I mean, it's not rated R, but it still is pretty gory. It's pretty bloody. Some some arms hanging around. Yeah. And there's a lot of off-screen violence. Like, for example, that raptor scene in the opening. You don't know what's exactly the raptor's doing to that guy, but you can tell it's horrific. And just the, the way he shoots it and the sound design... It just puts you on edge, and it's so you don't even need to see what he, that him like tearing apart the man's flesh. You just, you know, whatever's happening, it's horrifying. There's no need to do anymore. There's no need to show it, really. And scary, yes, but also this film is incredibly suspenseful. And I think the, the best example of suspense throughout the whole film is the velociraptors because Steven Spielberg depicts them as the most terrifying animal in the movie, in the world, even more scary than the T Rex and more menacing than the T Rex. And, um, he builds the suspense for the Velociraptors so well. I mean, we just get glimpses of the claw that Grant has and the, the story he tells the little kid with the at the archaeological dig. And we, we see the, the raptor cage and what they're kept in. And when they lower that cow, we, we, we see what they do to the cow, just the, the bushes moving and the sounds they make and, and the banging. And, and the hunter Muldoon, who's basically who— Chris Pratt is in the in Jurassic World, telling us how how smart they are and how deadly they are, even at eight months old. And then when we finally see the raptors after they break out of the cage, it's just it's just so it's such a huge payoff in terms of suspense. But he does that with different story arcs in terms of suspense, and not just the Velociraptors, but also the network of the security system crashing and and Dennis Nedry's uh, story arc. So like he builds suspense in different points in different areas of the film. Yeah, and. uh, a great example of a suspense also is the T-Rex attack and because you know that there's a T-Rex behind that fence but he slowly reveals it here and there and you don't even need to see it and you're horrified and the characters are terrified and he just slowly stretches the suspense until finally the monster shows up and I think that Spielberg is an expert on suspense and that's why the film works so well because it's not like the dinosaurs just, just attack right away. You know, He waits for it and, and he savors the moment and makes you really experience fear just like the characters are. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters. They have been for years. They've been great to work with. They're sponsoring all of our movie poster giveaways, and we have a very special one coming out in the next week or two. two. So stay tuned for our next giveaway contest. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be an awesome poster from MoviePosters.com. They offer great options of original designs, framing, backlight, canvas, and even plaque designs. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. We can't talk uh, like 90 minutes on Jurassic Park without obviously talking about the science. I mean, is it suspect? Yes. Do we care? Not really. Um, just examples of inaccuracies. And just remember, in the film, they talk about how they use the, the DNA of frogs to fill in the gaps of a missing DNA chains. So maybe that's the reason why some things are, are not accurate. For example, the T-Rex is depicted as kind of a, a shark-like predator that can only see you if you move. But according to paleontologists, they believe that it actually had incredible vision, similar to a hawk, as well as an excellent sense of smell. They even think they had feathers. So a lot of dinosaurs actually, you know, they're, they're more related to birds than lizards, obviously. We all know that. Paleontologists also believe that velociraptors were actually much smaller than depicted in the film about the size of a turkey, also covered in feathers, if not entire bodies covered in feathers, just parts of their body covered in feathers. They also weren't that smart, but like you just said, Spielberg... Make fun at this comparison of turkeys, I think, with the little kid in the beginning saying that it doesn't look scary. It looks like a giant turkey. I think Spielberg's poking fun at all the people that say velociraptors. Obviously, looked more like turkeys. But ironically, uh, Spielberg wanted the velociraptors to be uh, six feet in height, which was obviously way too big compared to what was actually found archaeologically. For velociraptors. For velociraptors. But while they were in production on this film, an archaeologist that he had as a consultant uh, these discovered the skull of a the largest raptor skull in history so they they confirmed that it theoretically it's possible that there were possibly raptors this big in real life so that was called the utah raptor and then there's also they are also based on when they went into production on the deinonychus raptors which is again all these dinosaurs were very bird-like think of feathers these talons just like birds and Spielberg and the filmmakers obviously opted for that kind of like giant lizard look which I can understand it makes them more relatable to us today um, to look like modern day lizards kind of and it's more believable and scary, probably, rather than making them look like these giant, like, wild half-bird, half-lizard monsters, which they actually were. Yeah, and they, they were very colorful, too. Mm-hmm. So that might have taken away from the horror of them. But Spielberg did give them bird-like mannerisms. Like, we we talk about the raptor neck movements are very bird-like. They kind of snap their jaws like beaks of birds. And Alan Grant talks about it yeah. in the opening of the film. They pay homage to the real bird-like actual characteristics of the dinosaurs without actually making them visually look like what they probably would have looked like. Yeah, but I think it's okay because I think that since they use frog DNA to help finish the the DNA genes, that's why there aren't any feathers on the dinosaurs, so they adopted uh, more of uh, reptilian characteristics as opposed to their more bird-like history and also there's no fucking dinosaurs, so we don't yeah. actually really know knows, really. we don't know for yeah. all we know they could all be red and just be spewing like hot sauce out of their pores. We don't know yeah hot sauce blurred. Out of- <laughs> <laughs> In Jurassic Park, the infamous insect preserved in amber was an elephant mosquito, the only species that doesn't suck blood, so this makes extraction of dinosaur DNA impossible, not to mention dino DNA is also too old and fossilized to read. Paleo- paleogeneticists maintain that after 1.5 million years, nucleotide bonds that make up DNA wouldn't be long enough to extract any meaningful data. And one more, The Pile of Dino Droppings, which is a hilarious scene, and they they stand next to these enormous man-sized, person-sized uh, piles of dino, dino droppings? Droppings? Droppings. The largest known coprolite fossilized dino dropping ever recorded was only 40 inches long. Only 40 inches. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the size of this table. That's huge. <laughs> and this film is based off of the book Jurassic Park, which is a fantastic novel. If you haven't read it, there's... There's a lot more detail into the, uh, the science behind how they created the dinosaurs, and also there's some really great dinosaur scenes, action sequences, and really terrifying scenes that aren't in the movie. One of my favorites is has got to be there's a scene where Grant and the kids, they're, they're, in the, they're also stuck in the park in the novel, and they find a river, and they decide to take a raft on the river to go down the river. And the T Rex follows them into the river, and the T Rex just slowly swims behind them and gets closer and closer to them. And it's a it's a, an amazing scene. And uh, just imagine a T Rex swimming behind you. It's like that dog scene, in No Country for Old Men, where the, yeah. the pit bull is swimming towards him. I don't yeah. I don't it, know if it's swimming; it's just walking on the base. I think, of the yeah, river. actually, I think it's uh, the river so sh- shallow enough that it can walk in the water. But it, it's just a fascinating idea, and I think that's something that would have been amazing to see on the film. But I definitely recommend checking the novel out, uh, Crichton. Wrote a hell of a, a story, and also before they did Jurassic Park, Crichton and Spielberg had a working history together. They actually both co-created the the TV show ER. So uh, Crichton, Spielberg co-created ER. Yeah. So wow, Crichton, I made, that guy's made a lot of money. Yeah. So so Crichton wrote ER, and then Steven Spielberg produced the show. And while they were making the the pilot, and um, they were discussing each other's work, and Crichton revealed that he's he was working on this novel called Jurassic Park. And uh, Spielberg asked him to send it over to him, so we sent it to him. And then Spielberg read it and immediately uh, called him and said, uh, I'm going to have Universal buy this. And so he talked to Universal, and Universal purchased the rights to the book for, I think, two million million, uh, six six weeks before it was even published. So no one else had the book or had access to the book except for Hollywood producers. And James Cameron wanted to make the film, but he never got a bidding chance because Spielberg, having already had this connection to Crichton, beat him to the punch and then spiel and then cameron after watching this film was like it's actually best that spielberg made it because if cameron made if james cameron made jurassic park he would have made it rated r and very uh, violent and gory just like aliens that would have been sick yeah which would have been sick but also it would have taken away the ability for kids to see this film Mm -hmm. and i think that this movie is is passed on through generations from parents showing their kids jurassic park you know, If I had kids, I'd be like, we're watching Jurassic Park. You guys are going to fucking love this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Forget more... Frozen, <laughs> Jurassic Park. Let's talk about the main characters in this film. We have Dr. Grant, played by Sam Neill. You may recognize him from Peaky Blinders, if you're a fan of that show. He's a very underrated actor, I think. He's awesome. He's Irish, I believe. Australian. Australian, never mind. <laughs> 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 and he was something with an... Yeah, not here. <laughs> That's he why something... I'm here. He was something not in America. He... <laughs> He's a paleontologist and dinosaur expert. And Dr. Grant, he's clearly a very intelligent guy. And one of my favorite character traits of him throughout this entire film is that he hates kids, which he clearly shows in the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. But he's obviously very passionate about what he does. He's very spearheaded and disciplined and is clearly obsessed with his work. Yeah, Grant has two main character flaws in that, first of all, like you said, he hates children, even though his girlfriend, Ellie Statler is very much open to the idea of having kids and it's something that she keeps talking to him about it's going to be a part of his transformation as a character but Grant also hates technology and he he lives in the past and he doesn't believe that technology has any useful benefits to, the, to, to, to society. For example, uh, in that dig site there's that guy who uh, has a computer and scanning for bones beneath the surface and Grant and the, the guy says eventually we won't even have to dig for bones and grant says what's the where's the fun in that? So Grant is very much against the idea of technology. and he, th- he likes to work with his hands and he thinks that technology is more of a detriment to uh, to us than anything else. And then his girlfriend Ellie, played by Laura Dern, daughter of Bruce Dern, is a paleobotanist and she's a very um, she's clearly a very intelligent person, also highly passionate about dinosaurs just like Dr. Grant. She's very independent, very vocal, and they describe her as tenacious in this film as she, she shoves her hands inside dino droppings without even blinking. Dino droppings? Droppings. Dino, dino droppings. Yeah, and this was a, a major breakout role for Laura Dern. This was her first major film. Although, after this film came out, Laura Dern was unfairly blacklisted by Hollywood because after Jurassic Park, her next role was playing Alan DeGeneres' uh Girlfriend on the Ellen TV show. She had a, a sitcom, and the most famous episode of that show was the episode in which Ellen came out on TV in the show. And in that specific episode, Laura Dern played her girlfriend who helped her realize that she was gay. And it was an, an iconic episode throughout all of TV history. And it got over two forty two million views uh, uh, on air. And it was a, a sensational episode and an important episode, obviously. But what happened was after this episode aired, even though she had just been in the biggest movie ever, Laura Dern was blacklisted in Hollywood because of her role as the girlfriend of Ellen, and she stopped getting any offers for work, and she was even getting death threats, and the set of The Ellen Show was even getting bomb threats, and for a long time, Laura Dern had to employ a full-time security detail to protect herself from all of these death threats, so Laura Dern... uh, went underwent in, intense and unfair persecution just for a role she played that's insane yeah because if you think about it she did kind of disappear for like a decade from hollywood and then she's obviously come back strong recently that's but why it happened it took that long for her yeah. to come back in hollywood which, which is so unfortunate because she's a great actress yeah. and and she she's just won the oscar got, she's obviously got the talent that her father like obviously passed down to her and her mother mm-hmm. and um and she's incredible and she's great in this movie she's one of the best characters for sure yeah, yeah absolutely so obviously she's deserves the success she has now and it was hard earned. And I think she's one of the highlights of this movie. And then we have Hammond, who's played by Richard Edinburgh brilliantly. He plays the Scottish billionaire who has this very childlike energy and excitement about him. He went from owning a flea circus to owning a dinosaur island in Jurassic Park. That's that's quite the upgrade. That's a bigger upgrade than in the office garage sale episode when Dwight trades up a thumbtack to a telescope. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> he's just one of the funnest characters because it's kind of like the dream to obviously be that wealthy, but then to have someone who has that wealth and does like crazy, interesting, fun, interesting, fun things like bringing back dinosaurs from the dead. Yeah, he's a he's not he's obviously one of the antagonists of the film, but he's not a villainous person. Everything he does is for the benefit of of mankind and hum- and entertainment, and he wants like his main motivation for building this park is to to create a sense of wonder for people to see of all ages in all of all social classes it's not going to be a park that only wealthy people can go to so he has good intentions and Hammond is actually a polar opposite from Grant where Hammond very much believes in technology and is reliant on technology and progress and and progress forward whereas Grant's living in the past Hammond is living in the future and I see very much Hammond's character being depicted similar to a god or or maybe he fancies himself one subconsciously. He's always dressed in all white. He has this big white beard. He seems very wise and charismatic and like a god, he wants to create life and uh, have it be observed and share his world. It's Yeah, it's a possibility. And his, his clothing is actually contrasted with Mal- Ian Malcolm's clothing because Ian Malcolm wears all black. And apparently... This These two wardrobe outfits perfectly demonstrate the difference between Spielberg and Crichton, the director and writer of the film, where Spielberg is more positive, outgoing, and upbeat, whereas Crichton is a little more reserved and quiet and very much reliant on science and mathematics. And so they had these characters where black and white as a contrast and also in relation to their own relationship in real life. And Malcolm is played by Jeff Goldblum. This is probably his most loved role because... They made Jeff Goldblum basically play him again in Independence Day. It's the same freaking character. But Ian Malcolm's this mathematician genius in the chaos theory realm, and he's also basically reached this level of a rock star. You can tell that, by the way he dresses. He, he looks like he plays guitar in a band or something. You know, He's got like these big necklaces. You can see all his chest hair. He's only got like one button done at the bottom. He's got that big flamboyant ring, so he's clearly... He's also always flirting with, with uh, Ellie in this film, mm. and he's hysterical. He's... Clearly has some of the best dialogue in the film. And I love Jeff Goldblum in this movie. He's great. Yeah, and Malcolm is an important character because he's always the biggest um, critic of the park itself. And skeptic. And skeptic. And his, he lives and dies through the idea of chaos theory, which essentially is... Chaos theory implies that there are occurrences that not even science or mathematics can, can explain things like weather or turbulence there's no way of predicting it and there's no way of really mathematically understanding it and his theory against the, his theory works towards Jurassic Park where creating the dinosaurs creates this chaos theory butterfly effect where we have no idea what could happen from this so there's no way to predict what will happen so the power of this is out of out of our control and I think that's the main conflict that arises between him and Hammond. And he has this great line in the film where he says, God creates dinosaur. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. So basically what he's saying is that, basically what he's saying is that humans had to basically destroy their concept of God, destroy religion in order to become gods and create dinosaurs and create life. Yeah, and also he's a he, he believes in the idea of cause and effect. In relation to chaos theory, he says this line where a butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing and it, and it creates a rainstorm in New York. And so every every small occurrence and situation has an impact that is inexplainable and unpredictable. We also get Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry, who's also famous for being Newman on Seinfeld. Newman, Newman. And he's hysterical. And yeah, he can be a kind of a cliche character. It seems like kind of... Just a bumbling Three Stooges kind of villain on a TV show or something like that. But it's effective. It's funny. Half the time, I don't know why he's driving so fast on those money roads or what he's even doing with the with the metal rope at the end to, to latching it to the tree. I don't, know, yeah. I don't know what the concept of, of that was. Well, what's idiot. he trying to do with, with that, that towing I, my, mechanism? Well, I think he's trying to pull the car out from the ditch it's stuck in. Gotcha. But then so. he would just drive down those steps. But yeah, I'm probably, yeah, I don't know. He he was in a mess of a situation. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh the he's the main antagonist to the film because he's the one that sets off this chain of reactions of of failures in the park, which leads to the dinosaurs escaping and basically all hell being broken loose. So Dennis Nedry is a villain because he's trying to steal the embryos and sell them. He he represents the evil innate nature within humans, and that's why the park will never be able to be fully controlled because of that reason exactly right there. And Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park actually wears very similar outfits to all of the characters in Goonies. So if you look at his outfits in this film, they pretty much perfectly match the Goonies outfits. Shuffle shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, the the driving force of Dennis Nedry is his, uh, his uh, unhappiness with his financial situation. So obviously, Hammond is not paying him how much he thinks he should be, be- getting paid. He has that a very strained relationship with Hammond, and saying that he deserves more for the work he's putting in, and he says he's he's uh, unrecognised for what he can do in this time. And it's ironic because Hammond has spent a fortune creating this park, and spared he's, no expense. He says the line spared no expense over and over again. And yet the one person he spared no expense for was Dennis Nedry, who ended up causing the destruction and collapse of the park itself. So yep. it's an ironic metaphor right there. And I think Hammond's personality is that people are responsible for their own actions. We don't know what uh, Nedry's financial situation is, what mistakes he's made. So I think he he wants people to claim responsibility for their actions, which is probably why he won't spare an expense for Nedry. Yeah. But it's still ironic because... Money seems to be no issue until it comes to Dennis Nedry. And, of course, this is a Spielberg blockbuster, so we're going to have some kids in danger for their lives. So, obviously, Hammond's grandchildren come in. The first one, in my favorite, is Tim, who plays this little little dude who's obsessed with Dr. Grant. And the best part about him is when he's introduced, he's wearing, like, the exact same outfit that Dr. Grant's wearing, <laughs> except he's just wearing shorts. But he's got the same the same blue button up. He's got the bandana tied around his neck. He's got the shorts and everything. And it looks like he probably, he obviously is a super fan and has read his books, which he says, and is obsessed with Dr. Grant. He probably has just photos of Dr. Grant in his room and just copied his (laughs) attire based off Dr. Grant. Yeah, it's a really cute relationship. And then Lex, who is the older sister of Tim, and she's also a very smart person. She's... uh, we find out a hacker because she displays these incredible skills of finding folders on a computer. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, that was a big deal. In 93, that was a big deal. But uh, she's awesome. She's really funny and great in this in this film. And I think one of my favorite scenes, the biggest laugh in this movie might be when the brachiosaurus sneezes on her. It's hysterical. Yeah, it's great. God bless you. And <laughs> <laughs> this film, it has so many classic one-liners and memorable lines like, "spared no expense and hold on to your butts. Life finds a way. It's it's great. We still talk about that. You still say that all the time. Hold like, on to your butts. No, hold on to your butts. But also, you say "spare no expense" all the time. Like yeah. you'll get like Postmates, and you'll be like "spare no expense." That's <laughs> <laughs> a great line. And speaking of hold on to your butts, how about Sam Jackson in this movie? He's awesome in this movie. When I was a kid, I didn't realize who he was, but now you you realize that Samuel L. Jackson is in Jurassic Park. This was out. This came out before Pulp Fiction. And a year before, yeah, and Jackson is just ripping butts the entire time of this film. I wonder how many cigarettes that he smoked during pr- the production of this film. Hundreds. A all day. he do, all he's, do, this guy is just taking rip after rip, and he has that great scene of dialogue where he he speaks for like a minute straight. And he's got a cigarette just on the tip of his lips, and he's somehow holding it in place while saying this dialogue. And it, does, it seems like he doesn't even breathe. It's yeah. just a great scene, and he's, he's just so good in this movie, and I love him. Yeah, it shows his uh, – Sam Jackson has an innate ability. He's famous for being able to memorize lines better than any other actor, and so he can chew up dialogue no problem, and he, and he rarely messes up his lines. Yeah, and the story is probably the greatest strength of this film. Obviously, dinosaurs have been done before, not as well, because Steven Spielberg didn't do it, and we've seen... I'm sure he wasn't the first person to come up with the idea of dinosaurs on the modern world, but I think he brought in the science of it with the genetic coding and cloning, and it actually, on screen, seems plausible to an audience member who knows nothing about science. It seems seems smart. You actually learn some stuff in this movie, uh, like the DNA a cartoon that's playing in a little theater. You actually learn some stuff, so it's actually a little educational. In that scene in particular, it's it's an amazing example of Spielberg being able to translate these very complicated and complex scientific ideas to children. Because I remember when I saw this movie for the first time, we were kids. Well, not little, little, but I remember being young and seeing this movie and completely understanding the science behind how they made the dinosaurs no problem at all. Which is a real, really hard thing to do, and I think he is such a good storyteller that he can even tell a complicated scientific story to little kids in a in a in a very easily digestible way. Versus the garbage they used to show us on VHS when we were kids in in, in science class and stuff like that. Yeah, so exactly. Like, so like, picture Steven Spielberg teaching your history class and what it would look like. That'd be a sick class. <laughs> do you want to? You want to tackle it? Want to get right into? I would it? love to get into the film of Jurassic Park. That that'd be so great. And. I love the opening of this movie because it's similar to Jaws where in Jaws we get like the shark attack but we don't see the shark we just see what happens. It's It opens up at the park in Costa Rica and it's the transport of the fully grown Velociraptor being transported into its main cage with the other Velociraptors and it's an awesome intense scene because again we don't see it but we hear it and we can see it rocking the cages and it opens with the bushes shaking and ever, all the men around are, are armed to the teeth and they look terrified. In the fact that there are there's got to be a dozen armed men with shotguns and rifles just shows the the danger that they are they have in front of them and this scene is a perfect demonstration of uh, a later scene where uh, Ellie Sattler talks to Hammond saying that there's no way he can, he'll he ever be able to control this kind of power because there are a dozen men, trained armed men, who can't even contain the power of this one Velociraptor. And this scene ends with one of the handlers being attacked and, and obviously killed by the Velociraptor as he gets trapped inside and pulled in by the Velociraptor. And this scene sets up basically the entire plot of the film, which is this lawyer and they have to bring in experts, have to sign off on the park. And obviously the next scene is where we're at these mines uh, digging for Amber and the lawyer's talking about the lawsuit that's facing Hammond that's o- over $20 million and over the, the death of this worker. And the lawyer represents the investors of Jurassic Park and the investors are worried that if the park is dangerous, it will never be able to be opened and they're going to lose out on a ton of money. And so the lawyer is setting is forcing Hammond to to find a way to endorse the park and, and convince the investors that it is a, a well and sound investment. And then we go to the this typical archaeological dig. It's somewhere in America. And it's awesome we get to get introduced to Grant and Ellie and we talked about the the scene where they're digging up the Velociraptor and he scares the crap out of the kid with the claw, the Velociraptor claw, which emotionally traumatizes him. That kid. Oh my God. He looks (laughs) like the kid from Sandlot kind (laughs) of. Yeah, he does. And, uh, you feel, (laughs) (laughs) and we have, we get the great entrance of Hammond coming to the site with the helicopter, just blowing everything around. And it's a really funny scene because obviously Hammond just don't like Hammond just lets himself into their trailer and, pops their champagne which they were trying to save for a special occasion he's like for today i'm sure (laughs) he's like for today i guarantee it and we get to get this charismatic billionaire into our into the story and he's so fun and he's going to fund their dig but he needs he needs grant and ellie to come to his park and sign off on it because just like ellie and grant we don't really know what we're expecting as an audience member who hadn't seen the trailers so we don't know (laughs) that there's going to be real dinosaurs there and he's trying to hint that it's right up their alley. They, they're the experts in the field of the park that he has. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a really interesting play on the power of money because even though they don't really know what they're signing up for, once he uh, guarantees to fund their dig site for three years, they're in. Because I think money is a strong motivating factor for a lot of things. And I think people who have money obviously have power to pretty much do whatever they want. And so Hammond can buy pretty much any anyone he wants to do and have them do whatever he wants and archaeologists depend on investors they they mostly they don't get funding from anywhere else, so they need investors and they need this dig to keep operating like I said earlier he he hates technology and he he lives in the past he I, seems like he's been digging up dinosaurs for decades yeah and he and he, I think he's reached his plateau in his life, and Ellie is obviously aware of it because every time she hints at the idea of kids he's just like rejects it right away and uh, makes excuses and obviously that's something that's important to her but he doesn't want that in his life and so I think uh Grant has reached his plateau in his life just and he's just like the dinosaur bones he digs up where he doesn't want to change and he doesn't want to evolve at all he just wants to stay static the way he is right now and I think that's a, a major character flaw for Grant and then we have this very important scene to the plot of the film, which is basically what causes all the, the terror in Jurassic Park. Is So Nedry is in Costa Rica, and he meets with this person from a, a competing company of Hammond Dodson. Dodson. Dodson, look, Dodson's, Dodson's here. here. And See, look, no one cares. And um, it creates the conflict of the film where Nedry is going to sell out his job in Hammond in, for profit, and he's going to steal embryos of dinosaurs and basically give this competing company... 10 years of work for, for uh, $1.5 million, I think, is what he's going to get paid. And clearly Nedry is just the worst person you'll ever meet. He's a horrible character. He's very selfish. He's greedy. He only cares about himself. Very, very immature. immature. Yeah, he's super immature. Um, he even sticks the guy with the bill. He's like, don't get cheap on me, all right? <laughs> and one of the most iconic images of, in the film is, I don't know how much shaving cream Barbara Soul sold after this movie, but they must have sold a lot because... Anytime you see that, anytime I see a Barbasol shaving cream can, I always think of Jurassic Park. They even sold cans with uh, dinosaurs advertised on them. Genius. And they had a 20th uh, anniversary edition of the Barbasol cans with the, uh, the Jurassic Park animals on it. It's so nuts. And it's a really smart idea. And uh, genius. Yeah, obviously the bottom of the shaving cream has a, a compartment which which slides out and it's refrigerated and cooled. And so that he can store their, the embryos in there for up to 36 hours once they're locked in. mm mm-hmm. And then we're in the helicopter on our way to Costa Rica, the, the island, Isle, Nub- Nub- Isle Nublar. And we learn <clears throat> and we're introduced to Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. And it's a great team because we get to see the back and forth that Malcolm has basically with himself because he's just nonstop talking and flirting with Ellie and trying to get uh, even just a look out of Dr. Grant, who just is just looking out the window with his hat on mostly. And starting fights with Hammond. And I think uh, Ian Malcolm is obviously extremely memorable character. And it be, he became a cultural icon. Like nowadays, like go on Etsy.com and search Ian Malcolm, and you'll see all kinds of uh, handmade art of Ian Malcolm. Uh, he became a fan favorite. I think that's why they had him as the lead in the second Jurassic Park film without Sam Neill or Laura Dern, which I think was a mistake. He's, he he couldn't be more different from the archaeologists. He he seems like a very much of a modern man, and he's also. For as charismatic and, like you said, that rock star quality that he has, he's a a genius-level mathematician and scientist. And this scene is really interesting because it offers up a metaphor for what ends up happening in the film. When there's a a little turbulence on the helicopter, everyone buckles up their seatbelts, but Grant's belts won't buckle up. It's kind of like all the female dinosaurs not being able to mate. It's uh, two parts that can't get together. And what he does eventually is he he ties up the belts together, creating his own connection. And this is a metaphor for the dinosaurs, even though they're all females, they eventually evolve and find a way to breed. Life finds a way and that's a deep metaphor. And so we land, obviously, onto the helipad and we get to this park. We're on this island and the most the first things we see is obviously these Jeeps and they've clearly got a corporate logo and everything and it's, it's legit and it's like a cereal box and It's a giant corporation, clearly, and they've thought this out, and it's highly financed, and they enter the park, and they go through these fences, multiple fences, and all have 10,000 volts warnings on them and motion sensors, and you're like, what kind of park is this? I mean, imagine being those characters walking through, and like, if I touch this, I'm going to be burned alive from electricity, so what could they possibly be keeping in here that's so dangerous that they, they can't control themselves? Yeah, and also, we learn more about the lawsuit that Hammond is facing and how important this this uh, weekend is for Hammond in in order to uh, salvage his his park from falling under because of corporate investors being afraid, and uh, he's uh, he's afraid of investors dropping out of the project. And what Hammond does, basically what Spielberg does to the audience, is he's like, "Let's get to business. This is what you came to see. We're gonna show you some dinosaurs." And he takes him on the jeep ride, and we get that amazing reveal of this of the Brachiosaurus. Uh, the Spielberg stare, the infamous Spielberg stare of wonder and awe that these characters are feeling and expressing just looking at something. And Spielberg does this in every one of his movies. There are shots from all of his films. You can look across the entire filmography of characters looking off screen in amazement, it could be amazement, fear, bewilderment, awe, and he just holds these shots where we can see the reaction of whatever's in front of them. And he employs it really well in this film because in this scene we don't see the Brachiosaurus first first we see Alan Grant's reaction and he's just filled with shock and awe and disbelief and then he he pulls Ellie's head over to look and she also does a similar reaction where she her, her mouth is agape and she can't believe what she's seeing and he still hasn't even shown us the dinosaurs we're like what are they looking at what is it and then Spielberg finally cuts to a wide of the entire scene and we see the Brachiosaurus in, in full scale and is eating from the trees and it's an amazing way to to create suspense not in a in a frightening way but in a, in a, a exciting way this the suspense of of excitement where we're just we're dying to see what these people are looking at and then when we finally do, we are also struck with the same amount of awe and wonderment as they are. And then you toss in John Williams' score and the peak of that of that music, and it's an incredible scene. Especially even still, I still almost get goosebumps every time I watch it, even though I've seen this movie thirty five times. Yeah, it's great. And, and the archaeologists are, are crying, and Ian Malcolm's just like the son of a bitch did it. And they can't believe what's happening. They can't believe, you know, dinosaurs, they've been extinct for 65 million years. We don't know what they really look like. These people have been studying them for their entire lives, probably since they were Tim's age. Dr. Grant's been obsessed with dinosaurs and trying to dig them up and imagining every day of his life what they look like. And right here in front of him is a freaking dinosaur. He's like, they're in herds. They do travel in herds. They do move in herds. They do move in herds. So it's incredible. And you can only imagine what they're going through. And they obviously want to find out. We want to find out. We get the great display of how this is all being done which we talked about with the cartoon back at the visitor's center. They've been mining for these amber deposits which is basically tree sap that has been fossilized which has mosquitoes stuck inside of them and preserved perfectly throughout the last 65 million years and through these mosquitoes they've extracted blood from dinosaurs dino DNA and with that DNA and filling in the pieces with frog DNA they've created dinosaurs and like i said earlier this i love this tour guy because it makes the process of how they created these dinosaurs very simple and easy to understand and, and, and simple enough for a child to get and it's a very cute scene and i don't know if, if hammond plans on doing every single tour in the yeah, future like, he can do every single one that's, that's a lot a of man. tours i mean that's a lot of work um Cause but the it, dialogue runs with him yeah it's a fun scene and then when we do get into the laboratory after they, they hijack the, the tour and they enter the lab, there's a very important shot that is subtle but it uh, is very meaningful to the story itself where that main doctor, Dr. Wu, who seems to be the head of the lab, and he ends up giving the, us a lot of exposition in the scene. The first thing we see is he's holding a clipboard and he's erasing something in the clipboard. Scientists are supposed to work with pen and ink. And they're not supposed to work with pencils because you're not supposed to erase data. Erasing data is extreme, extremely unethical for scientists to do. And it's very, very detrimental to research. You're supposed to log accurately every iota of data you get. And so we're seeing that the doctors in this lab laboratory are using unethical practices where something didn't add up right or correctly or something maybe was troublesome in his data, so he's erasing it and writing something that works instead. And this leads to the problem that occurs where the dinosaurs become asexual because they were not properly respecting their own data. Great point. And we get the great scene of them witnessing a hatching Velociraptor, which is so cool to see. Um and it's just fun. The animatronics are incredible on this and it's great. We get the the egg and the hatching and you quote this all the time where you're like push <laughs> Push, push, push. And he, the little Velociraptor pushes out of the egg and is born and Hammond is p- taking the pieces of shell off its head. And I love the reaction of Dr. Grant when they tell him the species is Velociraptors. He's like, you have Velociraptors here. Are you guys fucking stupid? <laughs> <laughs> but I think this scene is important because it shows that Hammond really genuinely loves what he's doing and he seems to he want he says he wants to be there for every single birth of every dinosaur on the island and um he it shows again that he has the the best of intentions with the park and he loves these dinosaurs and um is just as much just as fascinated with them as the the archaeologists are and so it also demonstrates his like childlike uh, qualities and his i think that his love of wonderment obviously has been a driving force to his career and why he's probably been so successful because he loves to be odd. And so he wants to awe others. And I think that's again, really similar to if you believe in a God or God's and God's creating human beings and putting them on this earth. And you know, a lot of religions teach us that they're watching us and, and they create us in their image and, and to, maybe to us, we're like Ham into the dinosaurs, you know, mm-hmm. where their creation. So they watch us with wonder and awe. And they're like, oh, look at them, they're being born, and mm-hmm. look, he's driving a car. But obviously, with that comes consequences, and and obviously we have violence and sin, and just like the dinosaurs, the creation of the dinosaurs comes tons of violence and death. This leads to them actually going to the Velociraptor cages, and the Velociraptors are so dangerous; they're kept in this isolated barracks with uh, electrified fences raised fences it's like it's like they had their own small compound yeah because um they're astonishingly talented jumpers so they had to put them in in an environment where they wouldn't able where where they aren't able to leap out of and they are fed vertically from overhead by a, a crane and it's an incredible scene where they drop the cow into the to the velociraptor pin yeah, because we don't see the raptors just like the beginning of the film. We just hear them. We hear them feeding, which is horribly terrifying. Just It's so loud. It's louder than the T-Rex, and it sounds like they're just tearing it apart. And then we see the reactions of the people. But yeah, and while they're eating, that's, again, where Muldoon, where, again, the trainer is explaining the danger and the traits of the Velociraptors, how smart they are, how one of them is, is problem-solving smart, and she just looks at you like she's figuring things out. And how They seem to be like wolves. Almost, yeah. yeah, and they hunt in packs, and, and then they pull the cage out, and it's just been torn to pieces. Yeah, and so this shows the, the monstrous side of the dinosaurs. I think that obviously the T-Rex is is very dangerous, but the raptors are probably the the worst antagonists of this film, yeah. animal-wise. And then the next scene is Hammond trying to get everyone on board. I mean, he's shown them what, what the park is, and what it what it functions like, and how the potential of it, and how much success there can be, in how much people would love it and enjoy it and everyone should get the chance to see this. And the only person who's on board who he says is the bloodsucking lawyer because <laughs> the bloodsucking lawyer only cares about money. But he brought these other people and he expected them to just sign off with flying colors once they saw it and how amazed, how amazed they'd be by it. But no one agrees that it's a good idea and no one signs off on it. Yeah, and they have a point because dinosaurs and, and humans are were separated by 65 million years and they were never meant to be walking the earth at the same time, and Hammond, it was so, so in favor of technology and discovery that he never considered the possibility of ge- genetically breeding dinosaurs as a as a dangerous thing, and he doesn't respect the past and and he doesn't respect the power that these creatures have. Yeah, Malcolm says. Your scientists were too busy doing things that no one had ever done before that they didn't stop to think if they should. So they're saying that this was not meant to happen and we don't know what to expect. We can't know how it's going to change the world, if it's going to work, how much violence or if, or if it could lead to the end of humanity. Yeah, and this is actually a very heavy theme in, in the idea of the advancements of science and technology where just because we're capable of doing something doesn't, in, doesn't mean we should because it could be either unethical or it could be dangerous. And yes, the advancement of these things are important to civilization, but I think there are mom- there are situations and ideas that we should probably never open. There are boxes that should never be opened. Yeah, it's basically showing you what happens when human beings try to control and manipulate nature. Nature always fights back, and oh, nature's going to get the last call. Yeah, and like I said earlier with the chaos theory, Ian is saying that there's no way of predicting what will happen you can no mathematics no science scientific theories can ever tell us what's going to happen if dinosaurs are walking the earth so no one signs off on it and Hammond can't believe it, but they have visitors and his grandchildren Tim and Lex come, which adds a whole new level of vulnerability to the crew and and stakes. stakes to the movie and again makes kids relate to this film because we've only seen adult characters up until this point now we have some kids and we get to see through their eyes, what Jurassic Park means to them. Yeah, and Hammond seems like a great-grandfather, and he seems like he really does love his children. Bro, I would give my grandpa a big hug, too, if he was a billionaire. Yeah, they talk about the presents he gave them, like, was it a car? (laughs) (laughs) Was it a Rolls Royce? (laughs) Yeah, Tim can't even drive when he gets a Corvette. (laughs) And then, um, like we said earlier, we get that funny scene with Tim and Grant, and Ellie uh, tells Lex to say to Grant that she said I should ride with you because it'll be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ellie is is trying to get him to open up to kids and try and see, try and spend time with them, so he can maybe see them in a new light. Yeah, and so they get inside the awesome Jurassic Park jeeps, which I love so much. I've bet, seen one in person. I've seen yeah. one too driving on the highway. Yeah, it must be the same person. Yeah, probably. It's it, fucking awesome. <laughs> And um, basically, what Hammond's doing is using this group, these this group of people, and these two jeeps as like a test run at his park and the exhibits and how the park will operate. And unfortunately it ends in disaster and starts in disaster too because every time they get to an exhibit, it's a lush forest, obviously, because you want to create the habitats that dinosaur would be happy and living in. But you can't see any of the fucking dinosaurs because they're not going to be out there hanging out looking for you to see them. We are going to see dinosaurs on the dinosaur tour, aren't we? <laughs> God, I really hate that, man. <laughs> and then we get a, a look at the control the control station and obviously Sam Jackson's in this and, and Dennis Nedry. And I think they're both great uh, conflicting characters. But this shows the idea of Crichton's story being about the theme of the dangers of our reliance on technology because the collapse of the park happens because the park is so automated. Um, It's so automated that they only need a, a couple of staff members in the control room to handle everything in the park because of the automation that Dennis Nedry has, in, has implemented. And so the irony is that Hammond's embracement of technology by making the park so automated ends up being the causing the downfall of the park. During the tour, while Malcolm is sweet-talking Ellie, everyone gets out of the car to see what's happening to an animal, or they see a Jeep in the fields, and they find a, a triceratops on the ground, a very sick triceratops. And this is, again, we get... This is the first time we see a dinosaur up close and personal. And it's really incredible to see how big it is. And we have that great shot of, of Grant, like, resting on its belly while it's breathing. And there's some <laughs> hilarious memes about that, too. There's a great gif of Alan and Grant... Lying on Ian Malcolm's chest as he's breathing up and down. Yeah, that shot where his shirt's opened up after he's been injured. So funny. Glistening in the light with sweat. (laughs) Ellie's trying to find out if this uh, Triceratops has been poisoned by the vegetation around it. And we have the hilarious scene of the dino droppings again, which we talked about. She just shoves her hands in wearing gloves. And Malcolm's like, you'll be sure to wash your hands if you eat anything. (laughs) And the Triceratops, it's actually not animatronic. It's puppeteered. And... There were several men inside of the belly and body of the Triceratops, and they, that's who was pushing Alan Grant up. It's just a, a bunch of guys, and they're pushing him up and down. And then there was another puppeteer working the mouth and head, and then uh, puppeteers working the hands, the uh, the feet. And it's an incredible, uh, incredible piece of special effects uh, that Stan Winston did. And they actually changed the scene shooting of this. They they changed the shooting date of the scene. Uh, Stan Winston was told that the scene was going to be shot like halfway through production. And then Spielberg, because of shooting circumstances, he actually moved it to being the first scene that they would film for the entire movie. And so the Triceratops wasn't ready. So Stan Winston and his team had to work overtime over two nights to to finish the Triceratops in time for the filming of the scene. It's intense. yeah. And because of the oncoming storm, the, the tour is forced to end. But Ellie gets split up at this point from everyone else and she decides to stay with the Triceratops and the other doctor on site while the other people of the tour move to the T-Rex exhibit. The tour is not going as planned. And then eventually, Nedry uh, sneaks off to commit his act of robbing the park of the embryos. And before he does this, he disables the entire system and he tells Hammond that it's just uh, preliminary normal things that the, some things are going to go off and on. But what he's really doing is he's he's shutting off the power to every single fence except for the raptor fence so that he can make his way through the park with the embryos. It's actually a funny scene because he's such an asshole and he's always so uh, confident and arrogant. But then when he's telling them, about this uh he's just sweating and lying through his teeth and he's a horrible liar you can tell he's Super. like he's like oh yeah if everything is gonna shut off is does anyone want uh anything from the vending machine i just had salty food and i kind of want sweet right now i'm gonna get some sweet it's actually a, a fantastic portrayal of being being nervous mm-hmm. it's very impressive it's a good acting performance right there at the same time there's a storm coming to the island which is going to be a tropical storm because it's costa rica so it's going to devastate the island so they have to cut the the tour short and also, this is forcing Nedry to have to speed up his plans because the person he's going to meet at the east dock that's going to... He has to drop off the embryos to... Their ship is leaving because of the storm early, so he has to get down there fast. And then after this, Nedry begins making his way through the park. He's opening up fence gates, and they're not electrified anymore. And he, he has to get to the dock within 15 minutes, even though there's an intense storm going on. And then while this is happening... The, the cars on the tour um, are powered down because of his, Nedry's actions. And again, they're all electric. The whole park is electric. It's all automated. It's from one computer system. So Nedry has disabled the entire park basically so that he can travel through all of these electrified gates without being uh, electrocuted obviously so that he can get to the east dock. He's putting the lives of everybody on the park in danger to get the money. And then we find out that the cars have stopped in front of the T-Rex site the lamb which was sitting down earlier has disappeared it's this really great scene where we know that the T-Rex is there but he doesn't show it right away this is the best use of building suspense in this entire film where everyone's in the car's the power's off and they're just waiting for the tour to, to power up again and Tim is moving through the car digging through stuff uh, playing with the binoculars and then he starts feeling the shaking and this these impact tremors, and he then he looks at the the two water cups on the dashboard, and every time there's an impact tremor, there's ripples in the water that form, and it, it's an amazing way to demonstrate the power and the force that this T Rex has, and actually the the cool way that they they created the ripples in the water was, the the sound producer, um, went beneath the dashboard of the car with a guitar, an acoustic guitar, and he would pluck the sixth string of the guitar uh, right below the cups, and that would cause the ripple effect in the, in the cups. I'm going to test that out later. Yeah, The fence starts shaking, then it, it starts breaking, and you're like, you don't know what it looks like, but you know it, it's so powerful that it's destroying this enormous metal fence. And then the characters, the kids, start panicking. The lawyer, Gennaro, just runs away and goes to the bathroom. And then Malcolm says, hey, if you got to go, you got to go. <laughs> but we can see, we can tell through the kids and how they're acting. it's They're terrified because they're trying to find some way of, I don't know, maybe protecting themselves or calling for help. And then we finally see it. The T-Rex steps out from its habitat and steps onto the pavement. As we were speaking about earlier, they blended together both CGI and animatronics and the way they built the the actual dinosaur itself was they built it to scales. They built this like 20-foot T-Rex and they built it around this uh, animatronic machine that was able to move the T-Rex in all sorts of ways, able to, to open and close its jaw. And it's a fascinating piece of, of animatronics work. I think it's the most memorable animatronic thing ever built for film, I would say. And it's so important because there's there's the tangibility when the t-rex has its face up to the windows and when it's moving around and you're seeing the actual skin the actual teeth and it's just a terrifying moment and it works so well and i don't think any kind of cgi even modern day cgi can ever replicate it every time lex has the flashlight and she's shining out the the window of the jeep i'm like Sh- shut the flashlight off what are you doing you idiot turn that thing off <laughs> damn kids and so obviously we have this epic scene of this T-Rex attacking the children's Jeep. and I, we talked about it in a previous episode where you mentioned that Spielberg likes to put kids in danger in his films, not in real life, obviously, because <laughs> this raises the stakes of the film and raises the stakes of the drama and makes everybody relate to it even more and it makes you more terrified. Yeah, I think one of the most iconic moments of the scene of this film is when the T-Rex breaks through the Pexiglass on the top of the car. And the kids are just holding the glass up while the T-Rex's mouth is just like pressing down on them. It's an amazing scene. They actually didn't know that... The kids didn't know that that was going to happen. They actually... they The filmmakers planned that to surprise them with it because it, it created a lot of authentic reactions from them from the glass being pushed in. And then... that So the blend of the CGI and the animatronics. So all these medium and close-up shots of the T-Rex animatronic. But then he cuts wide shots with CGI and then you get to see the full-bodied t-rex because the animatronic didn't have any feet it was just the body up and so when it's cgi you can see it moving in all its glory and then alan grant manages to to distract the dinosaur and and uses the flare to get it going in a different direction and then ian malcolm ends up running away to distract it even more so yeah so ironically grant despite not liking kids Sacrifices himself for a moment to save the kids, and then Malcolm sacrifices himself to save everybody else. And it's that epic scene where <laughs> Malcolm is being chased by the dinosaur by the by the T Rex, and it's freaking huge. And it's right on his tail, and he throws the flare, and it doesn't go after the flare, and then it it bashes Malcolm into the, the hut where the restrooms are. And then we get the lawyer sitting on the toilet by itself, and then he's <laughs> the first person to get eaten by a dinosaur, and the T Rex just destroys him and eats him. It's see, it's great to see him just grab him in his jaws, and this just. Swing him around like a rag doll. It was so entertaining, and it's it's horrifying. I can't help but think that there's some metaphor or some reason why the filmmakers and Spielberg and maybe Crichton wanted to kill the lawyer first, and maybe they have a bunch of lawyers in their life that have sued them up the ass, and so they want to get back at them somehow. I'm sure they were happy, and I, I I can definitely say like it's it's fun to see a lawyer end up getting eaten by a dinosaur. Not that all lawyers are, are bloodsuckers. Plenty of lawyers are out there are yeah. great people. I'm yeah. sure there's a lawyer listening to us right now like, hey, I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm sure you are. We're just being funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And um, then this leads to probably my favorite shot of the entire film is when when Grant is trying to get the kids out of the car and he manages to pull Lexi out. And then she does that horrifying scream. And then he grabs her and and tells her to be quiet and not to move. And then we get a shot of the T-Rex foot just planting in the mud. And I think it's the best shot of the movie just to see that foot stomp down on the mud with the the people in the background behind it. I think the best shot in the movie... is related to that print but we'll get to that in a little bit. I think I know what you're talking about. We have the terrifying scene of the T-Rex attacking the kids in Grant and we have this wild situation where they have nowhere to go. They can't run because the T-Rex will catch them, so they have to go over the ledge of the of the of the habitat and it's insane how they use the cabling to get down and try to avoid the avoid the car and because the T-Rex pushes the car over the side of the habitat. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great action set piece, and that's something that Spielberg does in this movie, where he has an action scene, and then it's a horrible situation, but then it gets worse, and then they find themselves in a in another situation that they have to overcome, and this is an example of that. And actually, a funny thing about this film is that uh, I'm sure no one noticed it uh, until they saw it multiple times, but that that cliff that they they end up hanging over, that's actually where the T Rex came from in the opening of the scene. And so geographically, they just pretty much halfway through the scene, uh, created this, this cliff side. And so it's, this really cool. If you watch it again, the T-Rex breaks through the fence and that's where its habitat is. But then when they go over, um, into the habitat, now it's this, this huge cliff. Maybe it was like a different side of the habitat. It's the same side. Yeah. Yeah. Continuity error. It's no, but it's like, it is an error, but I think they're like that. No one's going to notice this Mm -hmm. so we can do it and get away with it without it being a problem. And then the car crashes down into the tree. Lex and Alan end up making it down as well. This leads to uh, Dennis's infamous death when he crashes his Jeep into the woods. This is where he gets killed by the, the Lopasaurus. And first of all, Dennis is driving like an asshole. It's in the middle of a storm. <laughs> it's on a muddy road. And he's cruising down these roads. And he doesn't even... He's like... His face is against the windshield. He's just turning so hard. And he like, keeps looking around. He's like, not keeping his eye on the road like, at all. my God. He can't even see of his glasses... And then obviously he crashes this jeep and he gets out. We have the epic scene of, we have the infamous scene of the, the Lapisaurus, which um, in the film, I don't know how accurate it is in terms of the fan that it has, that it's it has and protrudes from its head. And then the ink that it's, It shoots out of its mouth. I think another dinosaur has that function of of a defense mechanism of a poisonous venom or ink that it can shoot out. But Spielberg's like, whatever, just give it to this dinosaur because it's super entertaining. and He treats it like a dog and tries to throw a stick to it. It seems harmless at first. Yeah, he's being very demeaning to it. And then the dinosaur ends up tricking him and he, he hides inside of his car after spraying him in the face with the venom. And then, can you imagine the death that this guy had to go through by getting eaten alive by not a big dinosaur? Because I'm sure a big dinosaur would kill you pretty quick. Yeah, like a T-Rex biting you would probably crush your your sternum and your heart real fast. Mm-hmm. But like a, a smaller dinosaur like this tearing you to pieces must be very painful. The, the off-screen violence in this movie is insane if you think about it. Yeah, and unfortunately, the version we watched recently doesn't have the part where it cuts to while he's being torn apart in the car. We we the camera cuts to or the camera tilts down to mud on a creek. I think in the extended cut, there's blood mixed with the mud. Yeah, definitely. For sure. But uh, it's, it's satisfying. I think ne- uh, Nedry got what he deserved. Oh, absolutely. He fucking sucks in this movie. Yeah, I was, asshole. Asshole. I was happy to see him die. And then we cut back to, to the tree and uh, Alan and Lex are fine but the tr- the car stuck up in the tree with Tim in it so Alan has to go get him out. He climbs up the tree and he finds Tim in there and Tim's upset, obviously, and he, he threw up. And then he pulls him out of the car but then the car starts falling down the tree. And it's this great sequence where they have to climb down the tree before as the car is falling down, breaking through branches above them. And it's a it's a terrifying moment where they finally reach to the ground, but then they fall, the car falls on top of them, and they just jump down, and it, it lands above them, and it doesn't hurt them. They, get, they stay underneath it out of harm's way. And then at the visitor center, they realize what Nedry's done, how he's corrupted the entire system. Arnold can't get it back on live. He can't get Jurassic Park online without Dennis Nedry. And so obviously they realize they don't know what he's done with the embryos yet. They actually don't even ever come back to the embryo robbery at all. Ellie and Muldoon go to search for survivors, but they can only find Malcolm, who survived the attack from the T-Rex, where the Jeeps were outside the T-Rex habitat. And they eventually find the Jeeps at the bottom of the habitat, but they can't find Grant or the children. And then we have But the, they do find the footprints. They do find the footprints and and I think my favorite shot in the movie again going back to that T-Rex print when we show mm. his hand his foot come down. And now we have Malcolm's on the back of the Jeep just waiting for for Ellie and Muldoon to come back and he starts to hear the stomps of the T-Rex and Spielberg takes the camera from Malcolm, pans down to the giant Paw print or footprint of the T Rex that's filled with water, and we see the ripples in that water. And then he shifts the focus in the water to Malcolm looking at the footprint with the water shaking. And I think that's my favorite shot in the entire movie. Yeah, that is a really good shot. And then uh, it leads to that amazing chase where they get in the Jeep, and they there's that the T Rex is chasing the Jeep on foot. And T Rexes were actually extremely fast, they believe. They believe that T Rexes could hit up to 50 miles per hour on an all out sprint in the open. And um, it's a great scene, especially when uh, we get the shot of the T-Rex on the side mirror of the car. And luckily they get away. But it's, a, it's a, probably the standout moment of special effects in the film of the CGI, chasing, CGI T-Rex chasing the Jeep. I think it's fantastic. And so Grant and the kids have to basically spend the night in Jurassic Park. And they find a treetop where they're away from all the scary dinosaurs down below. And they come across that brachiosaurus that sneezes right in Lex's face, which is hysterical. God bless you. God bless you. And um, it's, it's funny because Grant is starting to take a like, taking a liking to these kids. And, you know, he, he feels like kind of a, somewhat of a father figure for them at this point because he's protecting them and he's trying to keep them safe. Yeah. And then he, this is an important moment for him because uh, Lex asks him what he and Ellie are going to do now that they don't have to dig up dinosaur bones anymore because they're dinosaurs now. And he says uh, maybe it's time for them to evolve. And so Grant is understanding that he needs to evolve and change as a character. You know, maybe these kids aren't so bad. Maybe having a kid wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And also, I think that it, they're stuck in the park without any technology to help them. And I think that having technology would definitely benefit them in this situation. And so I think he's realizing that technology in, all, in, in some circumstances is much needed. And so his character's going through change in this moment. And then, the same thing's happening with Hammond, where Hammond never um, anticipated danger from creating dinosaurs until the two people uh, who he loves most in the world are, are at risk of dying from his own creation. And so and now he's beginning to respect the danger. And people have been eaten. And the next day in the morning, when Grant and the kids get down from the tree and they start to travel, they discover the dinosaur shell eggs. And what this has shown is obviously he talks about how there are some species of frogs that spontaneously change sex in a single-sex dominated environment. And this has obviously happened to the dinosaurs because they figured out how to breed in their Velociraptor eggs, people. Ian Malcolm's right. Life finds a way. And now, so everyone else, they're at the control station and they've decided that In order to gain control back of the park, they need to shut it down completely. So they do successfully reboot it and it works, but power fuses are out, which uh, they have to turn back on across the compound and Arnold volunteers to go out and and turn them back on. And while this is happening, we get that epic scene where Grant and the kids witness the T-Rex in all of its glory hunting for prey from that flock of... Uh, Galliposaurus. Yeah, we have the awesome stampede, which is scary as hell for a little bit. It reminds me, reminds you of the Lion King for sure. Mm-hmm. And then it just destroys one of them, and you can tell that T Rex, although it has these tiny little arms, it does not <laughs> need those arms because it has no problem catching and eating prey. Yeah, don't be fooled by the little arms. It can't curl five pounds, but it can take down a bus if it wants to. And something's taking Arnold too long to reboot the system and and uh and fix the fuses. So. Ellie and Muldoon decide that they're going to have to go check on them and see what the delay is because they really need to get the phones, they really need to call for help, and they really need to find Grant and the other and the kids. And so they set off on this on this quick little rendezvous, which should only take three minutes to go turn the break, the fuses back on. But as soon as they leave the the visitor center in the in the control center, they realize that Velociraptors have escaped because shutting down the entire system. Although the Velociraptor's cages before were still active and still electrocuted, it shut down their fences, and the raptors have escaped. And just seeing um, this hunter who has, he says, hunted everything that can kill on the planet, and earlier he compared Velociraptors to nothing he's ever hunted before, and seeing the look of fear on his face is just makes you terrified with suspense, and you know the raptors are out there as they're moving through the woods, and so they find the the door that they have to get to, and he has Ellie just run for the door, and she just pulls this great little little Tarzan run for the door, and she jumps and and swings across a branch, and she makes it. And the whole time she's running, you're just so scared that a velociraptor is going to come out from the bushes and eat her. Yeah, because Spielberg never shoots from in front of her; he falls behind her, so it makes us feel like anything could come out from behind her and chase after her. And again, we've all we've only learned what the velociraptors can do; we haven't really seen them in action yet, and we're terrified of them. And while this is happening. Uh, Grant and the kids find that giant fence that is not electrified anymore, so they decide that they're going to climb over the fence onto the other side in order to make it to the visitor center. But while this is happening, Ellie enters the, the barracks of the power station and finds the circuit breakers. As Hammond is, is uh, walking her through the, the circuit board, as she turns on each part of the park, she's getting closer and closer to the perimeter fences which Grant and the kids are still on climbing down the alarm starts going off on the fence and so they have to make it down as quickly as possible but Tim is getting uh, Tim gets stuck and can't make it down the fence and he he kind of freezes in the moment as Ellie is turning on the power and he gets electrocuted and he gets blown off the fence <laughs> Spielberg man he's always putting kids, kids in danger and then Ellie she finishes her job, and she completes the circuit, and it's all turned on. And then all of a sudden, the velociraptor's head just bursts through the through, through the side of the room. And I love the next part because she, she thinks she's escaped, or she thinks she's found help because a hand falls on top of her shoulder, and it's Arnold's arm. And she's like, oh, Arnold, it's you. And she turns and, and lifts just an arm out from inside that closet. Yeah, a severed arm. It's a great moment. And then the the velociraptor starts tearing through the fence and ripping it off. Yeah, and I love how it just like jumps down both of its feet onto the ground. <laughs> And it's it's a terrifying chase where she's limping from an injury and she makes it barely out of the barracks alive. And then uh, we cut back to uh, Alan and he resuscitates Tim back to life and uh, the kid's okay, although he got fried to a crisp. He calls him like burnt toast. <laughs> <laughs> and then Muldoon is s- still being hunted and hunting the Velociraptor. He thinks he's hunting the Velociraptor. And it's a great scene because there's really not much music. I don't think there is any actually. There's no, no, no. sound. Can't hear anything. You're just watching this very capable hunter with this huge gun hunting a velociraptor, and then he realizes that he, as he sets his sight on one. Yeah, he, he 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 was in a trap. It was a trap the whole time, and uh, it's a great shot because he realizes he lost. He hears the rough rustle. He hears the rustle of branches right to his his side, and then he looks and he goes, "Clever girl." And then he gets attacked and, I, and eaten. And I love that line because it's, it shows, like, he has respect for this Velociraptor because yeah. it outsmarted him, and it's like a game to him. And he's like, oh, it, it out-hunted me, and now I die. That's the way it is. It's actually a metaphor to what Alan Grant says to the kid in the uh, at the dig site in the opening of the film where he says, you have your eyes on one raptor, and then you get attacked by two raptors that you didn't see that were on either side of you. And so these raptors did the exact same thing to Muldoon. It's a really great scene. And then... um. Grant and the kids make it to the visitor center, and Grant's like, you guys chill here, have some food, and I'm going to get everyone else. And then there's a great shot of of Tim walks up to the buffet, and he just grabs two spatulas. He's like, okay, <laughs> let's fucking eat. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's eating all the cake, and, she, and his sister's eating a bunch of fruit. Yeah. And then Grant, he, Grant finds Ellie outside, and she's obviously horrified, and... He takes her inside. One of the best shots in the entire film is the kids are eating at the table and they're so happy. They think they're safe because they're indoors. And then um, Ellie, I mean, and then Lex is just eating jello and it's just she's in terror and the jello shaking in her hand. And then we have that great shot of the shadow of a velociraptor on the other side of the of that thin wall, right next to the drawing of a velociraptor. Yeah, it's a, a great a great image, and Spielberg is obviously famous for using shadows in his films to help tell the story. Um, And shadows are synonymous with the cinematography in Spielberg movies, and this is one of my favorite uses of shadows in all of his films. And then this leads to probably my my second favorite scene besides the T-Rex scene is the kitchen scene with the raptors. And the kids get inside the kitchen, they think it's a safe place, but then they realize that the raptors can open doors. And the raptors, they want to play hide-and-seek. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great scene, and, and as a kid watching this, it's because it, the, the characters are kids, so you're you're right there with them, and it's a great way they, they move through the environment, and they find ways to distract the raptors. And um, like we said again, the special effects and the visual effects, the CGI, and the actual body suits of the raptors they look fantastic there isn't a shot in the scene that doesn't look bad i think i think spielberg really revolutionized filmmaking with this scene in particular because it's so effective one of the best parts of the scene is right before it starts is um ellie's talking about how uh she trapped one she trapped one in a door and it should be fine unless they figure out how to open doors and then boom the velociraptor opens up a door handle to get inside the kitchen guys are you in here it's great because you obviously have these super predator monsters basically hunting these little kids but what kids what humans have is higher intelligence and so they basically use their wits to outsmart these horrible monsters that are trying to kill them yeah so tim manages to to lock one of the raptors inside of the freezer and lex manages to get the other raptor to to slam its head into a, a metal wall and they they give themselves enough time to escape the kitchen, although that that second raptor uh it gathers itself and stands back up and Why they didn't close the door I don't know Yeah, I don't know. but At it's a great it's a great shot where we uh Spielberg puts the camera right behind the the raptor's head and we watch it uh as it's as it is watching the kids escape yeah it, it, the Spiel, the velociraptor gets its own Spielberg stare that's <laughs> <Arr. laughs> true he does get his he got a Spielberg stare you're right. <laughs> And as this is happening, Grant and, and Ellie show up, and he's got a shotgun finally. And they're like, let's get the hell out of here. Um, and they manage to uh, enter the control room. So they get inside the control center, and as soon as they close the door, Velociraptor's just like looking through the window like, can I come in? Yeah, and its breath is just fogging up the window. And these goddamn doors don't have handles. They only operate on locks, which is ridiculous. But yeah. Obviously, helps tell this, hilarious, this great scene. And since the power in this area is still down, Lex has to... To hack her way into finding a folder in the computer finder. She was hacking by not even typing any code. (laughs) She doesn't type any code. She just, like, uses her mouse and slowly travels around folders. Don't tell me that that (laughs) is hacking. Come on. (laughs) But she does it, and she hacks into the computer. She saves the day, and they lock the door. door, But not for long. And then Alan calls up uh, Hammond, and is like, call on the choppers. Yeah, but then the velociraptors are going to come through the window, so they, they exhaust their bullets, and they climb into the ceiling and then the velociraptors just break into the wind through the window. This leads to the famous ending where they they enter the visitor center and they they climb atop that giant uh, dinosaur skeleton that's hanging up from the ceiling. Yeah, and they all fall down and then they get cornered by a bunch of they get cornered by two velociraptors because that one that was in the kitchen met up with another homie who comes in through that tarp. I got some humans we can eat. Come on, bro. Like, Let's go. You hungry, playa? <laughs> I'm starving. I'm famished. They haven't fed us in like 10 hours. <laughs> you think they're going to get eaten by the Velociraptors, but then comes big girl Miss T-Rex to come save the day, and she absolutely destroys one of the, velociraptors while the other while the kids escape and grant and L, and then uh, it, it takes down the other Velociraptor. Yeah, it's a great fight to see the, the dinosaurs uh, uh, fighting each other. And then the the T Rex just fucks them up, and then has that gigantic roar. And as it's roaring, the banner saying uh, the banner Jurassic Park banner falls down. It's an iconic image in the in the entire series. Yeah, I think it says "When dinosaurs walked the earth." Yeah, and everyone is, uh, escapes the island. Uh, Hammond reluctantly, but he he agrees that uh, he's he's going to cancel his plans for the park. And then we get that that the ending conclusion in the helicopter, and and Ellie sees Grant, and he's. He's holding the kids in a paternal way. So she's recognizing that he has his beginning to change in his character. And I think it'll be a benefit for both of them. She sees. And again, nature gets the the last say at the end of the film. And it's really essential for this film that the humans don't rescue themselves because the Raptors get killed by the T-Rex. So nature, even though they tried to control nature, nature fought back and nature took their lives into nature's hands and um, it wasn't human ingenuity. It was uh, nature and life finding a way that always will. And the final shot is on the helicopter of them looking at the birds, they're looking at these birds flying away. And they, you know, can represent flying away and escaping. Um, they're also the first modern animals we've seen since um, they've been at Jurassic Park. So it's kind of a symbol of returning to the normal world and leaving behind the chaos of Jurassic Park for now. Yeah, it's a great conclusion and. In- the second half of this film is just non-stop action and as it climaxes and ends it's a it's a really satisfying story i think it's always going to stand the test of time as one of the greatest uh, science fiction adventure films ever made And that concludes episode 38 of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Jurassic Park. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Support us on Patreon, become a monthly member, and get special perks there. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, everywhere, Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and stay tuned for our movie poster giveaway. Take care, everyone.